The Melting Pot. Hosted by Dominic Munkas. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot Podcast. It's Dominic Munkhaus, where I get to talk to some amazing business leaders and business authors. Today, I'm talking to Vern Harnish. Uh, Vern is a man who doesn't know it, but has changed my life. When we were at Rackspace, Rockefeller Habits had a huge impact on the organization and helped us scale that organization. And I took that experience from Rackspace into other organizations, IT Lab and Peer One Hosting, where we've had other phenomenal successes. So it's fantastic to be talking to Vern about some of the challenges that he sees organizations face. Vern probably needs very little introduction, but he's a man who founded the EO organization, wrote Rockefeller Habits, updated it with Scaling Up, heads a international coaching organization, He also runs a phenomenal event, Scaling Up Summit. I was privileged to be at that event for a couple of days in New Orleans a few weeks ago. And Vern, at the end of our discussion today, says when the next ones are on, there's one in Europe in November. So here's Vern. Vern Harnish and author of the book Scaling Up, Rockefeller Habits 2.0, and the company called Scaling Up. Thanks for joining me, Vern. Why do you do what you do? Well, the, you know, the mid-market companies, Dom, 10 million to a billion, they're really the ones that drive most of the innovation and jobs around the planet. And so they're critical to economic growth and ultimately kind of political and economic freedom in their country. So it's, a, it's quite missional for us to support this group. And they often get ignored because there's not a lot of them. So there's not the votes. And they don't have big budgets for folks to influence the government. And so they're often, you know, the unsung heroes that we like to make sure we pay attention to. Plus, number two, there's there's no curriculum. You know, the number one barrier to scaling up is knowledge. It's the big barrier is not knowing what you don't know. And there's a course on every street corner now on how to start a business. And I have an MBA, and that's supposedly... To, to teach out around a large company, but how do you get up that S curve? There was there's no education, and so when I founded EO 30 years ago, in fact, I'm here in Nashville celebrating our 30th anniversary with this chapter, uh, and this executive program at MIT that I still teach in called the Birthing of Giants. The whole idea, starting back in 1991, is how do we develop the tools and the techniques and the curriculum that really makes it easier for company leaders to scale up from small to large. And that's what we feel like uh, we've been able to, to master moving forward. And it's helped about 40,000 companies now to date. Do you, do you have a definition for scale up? Yeah, you know, there was a, our, our company's name is Ben Gazals, which is a technical term David Birch came up with when he was at MIT. You know, there were the mice, uh, the small companies, the elephants, the large, and then the gazelles. And typically, it's grown at least 20% a year for three, four, or five years, depending on the country. And it's on some kind of a significant base, which is considered either half a million to a million. So we, it's, it's loosely companies that are trying to double every three to five years uh, their revenue. 
if I could take you all the way back to 30 years ago when you started that EO and later when you started the MIT program, what, what was your personal motivation? You know, what, what flipped the switch for you and you went, I'm going to start EO? I had uh, started a group called Association of Collegiate Entrepreneurs and we hosted this event in LA for Steve Jobs. It was his first public speech after being fired from Apple. And I had about 1,200 young entrepreneurs, including Michael Dell and Mark Cuban and many of the others that have become fairly well known. And we then threw a party uh, in honor of that ACE 100, including Steve. And it, came, it dawned on me as I was looking at him and everyone else that uh, a good friend of mine, Joe Mancuso said, it's okay to be independent, but no reason to be alone. And that there needed to be an organization that supported these entrepreneurs because it is a lonely job at the top. And so that was really what got it launched uh, the following year in 1987. You're absolutely right about it being lonely at the top. And certainly that when I speak to entrepreneurs who started their own business, that's they often those that don't find support look back and wish they had. If people want to join EO, is there a, if people are listening to, listening to you here and, the, and, and it's not something that they've heard of before, is there, is it just EO.com? Is that where they go? No, it's uh, eonetwork.org. It's a nonprofit globally. And we're, we've added another thousand members just in the last few months. I think they're at 13,000 globally on its way to 20. And you have to be doing at least a million a year in revenue. So that's the critical gate of which only about 4% of companies ever get across that threshold. It's staggering, isn't it? How many businesses start and then, you know, a million doesn't, well, it doesn't feel like a lot when you sit on the other side of it, you know, if you've worked in a larger organization, but it can feel, it can feel like you're running uphill on that way to a million. You bet. But the real challenge is, you know, how do you get across the 10 million mark and the hundred million mark, which we've helped a lot of companies do. And, and there's a unique set of challenges that we outline in, one of the early chapters in scaling up, I call it the three barriers, which is really first your own leadership development. It's kind of what's between your ears, both your mindset as well as your knowledge of how to kind of navigate this S-curve. The second is scalable infrastructure. You know, the biggest issue we've got in the latest survey in the United States is just the digitization of the enterprise. And specifically, we just had some key presentations at our scale up summit around what is the practical use of artificial intelligence in our companies? There's a lot of talk about it. It's the number one topic among the Fortune 500 CEOs, but how do we practically think about it as mere mortals? And then number three, the, the key function that makes or breaks you in scaling up is the marketing function, separate from sales. And you need marketing not just to attract uh, new clients, but you need it to attract talent, attention in the marketplace, investors, in general, all the relationships that are necessary for you to kind of bolt on to the enterprise in order to have it, have it scale. And so those three barriers, leadership development, scalable infrastructure, and a robust marketing function are the three specifics among many things that we, we focus on. When a leader's thinking about that leadership development piece for themselves, is that something that people can do on their own? Well, it's one of the reasons why one of my early clients now runs is the largest European owner of restaurants in the world, just named the best performing chain over the last 12 years uh, in all of Europe. And you know, they're based in Poland. And we needed to find a way to get education there and across his enterprises. And so we 
put all of it online. And that seems to be where uh, everyone's going, even traditional education, is let's learn it online and then let's get in groups to support each other, kind of what they call the hybrid model. And so we've worked hard to make it easy for people to get the practical education around sales and marketing and negotiations and hiring and Salim Ishmael's course on exponential organizations. And we bundled together what we call an MBD, a Master of Business Dynamics, which we think is a nice augment to anyone who's got an MBA, the Master of Business Administration. It feels like administration is kind of done what you did last century. Here, managing this dynamic is what you really have to do this century. So that's what we've worked hard on over the last couple decades is making this educational really, education really accessible to not only the leadership teams, but everybody inside the company. We're, we're pretty adamant that the key, if you want to 10x the company and the mindset, you've got to 10x the knowledge of everybody in the organization. And, and probably the last, the last example I use is, you know, you go back to Steve Jobs. Apple here is the largest market cap company now on the planet, near a trillion dollars in market cap. And the thing Steve learned in his wilderness years at Pixar was the power of focus. Uh, literally only having one thing to work on. In that case, it was Toy Story. And then two years later, they could work on the next hit. So when he got back to Apple, he chose to do the same thing. They worked on the iPod, then two years later, the iPhone, and then two years later, the iPad. And he knew, Dom, he was, he was dying. And I think what's significant is the final project he chose to focus on. I mean, here you know you want your baby not only to survive and thrive, what would be the last initiative you would focus on? Would it be a product? In his case, it was the launching of Apple University. He recruited the former dean of Yale to come on board. And he knew it couldn't just be, you know, one key exec, Tim Cook, that he would leave behind. He would have to leave behind a way to educate all the employees and upcoming leaders in Apple in the Apple way, in the Steve Jobs way, how we make design decisions to operational decisions moving forward. And I credit, and there's not a lot talked about because it's quite secretive. But I believe it's Apple University that has been critical to their continuing to scale six years after Steve's untimely death. So that's how important we think it is for leaders to focus on making sure that they, their executive teams, and everybody in their company continue to get education. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you often only see the impact of those types of initiatives in retrospect when you look at the Illuminati who've left an organization and gone somewhere else and, and ended up in leadership positions in other organizations, you can, you can see how, how powerful that was. Um, just picking you up on something about Focus Fern, what, what do you think day-to-day -day organizations should do? Are there some things that they should do to help them focus? Because people just get busy, don't they? Yeah, they do. And that's the challenge is you have a thousand things to do on your to-do list and it's easy to get, first of all, focus on the urgent instead of the important. I know it's a trite statement, but it's so important. So the key is, way to think about it is line your thousand things up like dominoes and try to identify the front domino, the one you need to knock over that's going to give you the most leverage today, this week, 
this month, this quarter, this year. That's part of the idea of the sprint process that's in Agile or Scrum methodology. Typically a sprint is two weeks. At Google, it's five days. And they're working on these massive initiatives. But the idea is to sit at the beginning of the week and say, all right, what is the key thing we need to get done this week? We just had these discussions yesterday on our Monday meetings for this week as well. And what you want to do is identify what is the key constraint. And that means reading a book called The Goal by Eli Goldratt, an Israeli who passed away the same year that Steve Jobs did. I consider The Goal being the most important business book that's ever been written. And he gave us what's called the theory of constraints. And the idea is for you to put your effort, time, energy, money, resources, any place but the constraint is a waste of time. So, you know, that was how Steve Jobs thought about it. Hey, I've launched this iPod. What's really constraining its adoption and use? And it was the kind of how guilty people felt downloading illegal music. And it just wasn't right for the industry. And so here's a guy designing hardware who makes a decision that, man, we need to fix how we download, buy and download music. And so he launched iTunes and ended up controlling kind of the distribution of music. Later on, he realized, you know what the real constraint we've got next is I can't get anybody to retail my beautiful products as well as I feel like they should be retailed. And so what's he do? Here's a guy that designs and manufactures hardware, launches a retail store, and it's the most successful retail store in the history of the planet. And so every move that Steve Jobs made at Apple, and we coach leaders within their own companies to make, is to identify what is the leading constraint to us continuing to scale, to us continuing to make things easy for our customers and our employees. And once you identify that constraint, you need to put 100% of everyone's effort behind it why they're getting the rest of their job done in order to get that constraint removed. Last example, so Mark Zuckerberg's getting ready to take um, Facebook public and you would think that's a big priority. Yet when we went out, we sent our tech writer from Fortune, Adam Lashinsky, out to the meeting, he came back surprised that Mark had hardly mentioned it in passing at their quarterly all hands meeting. And instead he said, what we've got to do this next 90 days is put our heads down, stay focused, and get us mobile. Because overnight, people quit using PCs and it switched to their mobile devices. And Facebook wasn't mobile ready. And so it was an all hands-on you know, effort to get that accomplished. But they did. And 98% of their revenue growth over the next 18 months came from mobile ads that they didn't have as a product just three months before. And look, he could have got 900 other things done but if they had not gotten mobile in that next 90 days, we wouldn't be looking at one of the highest market cap companies today. So that's the way you've got to think about it. What's my constraint today? What's my constraint this week? What's my constraint this quarter? And what do I have to get done this year that would most unleash the organization to grow moving forward? And Vern, lots of the people I speak to say that their biggest constraint is attracting great staff. You bet. It is number one right now. Scalable infrastructure 
in surveys is number two, but number one right now is talent because we're basically at zero unemployment almost everywhere on the planet. And so do you see good examples of, of people fixing that in hundreds of people you talk to every quarter? I do. There, and there's a handful of strategies, again, being very practical about it. Uh, first is we really get these organizations focused around process. Scale-ups have a tendency, Dom, to really want to make sure that their functions are running well. So I've got a well-running sales department and marketing department and accounting department and operations, but that's not how real work gets done. It gets done cutting across those function in a series of processes. And so we share the story of Nurse Next Door. You know, they had 28 employees at headquarters. They're doubling each year, providing nurse, nurses to go to people's homes to take care of their elderly parents instead of sending their elderly parents to a nursing home. So it's one of the fastest growing franchises in North America. And so John and Ken, the co-founders, are sitting there and their uh, head of payroll comes in one day and she says, look, trying to keep track of these thousand independent nurses we've got to make sure they've got their time cards in and they're getting paid. It's taking me 80 hour work weeks. Plus you're going to double again in the next year. I need some help. And we have a tendency as scale-ups just to throw people at the problem. But instead, Ken and John brought in a lean consultant, somebody that knew how to really organize their process. And I'll make a long story short, a year later, they essentially doubled in size, whether you want to look at revenue, nurses, customers, yet their headcount at headquarters dropped from 28 people to 22. They didn't fire anyone because of the initiative. If you do, everyone's going to stonewall it. But two or three left just natural nutrition, and two or three wanted to go back out in the field. And one day, his head of payroll comes in and said, look, John, I can hardly find 30 hours of work now that we've leaned out the process. Same with bringing on a new franchisee. Before they revamped that process, it was a struggle to bring on one new franchisee effectively a month. When they cleaned out the process, they could bring on five without breaking a sweat. So first, we think most scale-ups could double, triple, or even quadruple their revenue without adding a net new additional person if they would just clean out their processes. One hint, don't call it lean, call it something else, but get serious about process improvement. The second thing is to make sure that you have a, you know, you fish where there's fish. You have a consistent talent pool that you can pull from. So I had a friend who was in the carpet retailing business and she needed carpet salespeople. And she really couldn't pay them that much more if they came from another carpet retailer. And not only did she have to retrain them, she had to untrain them first and then train them in her way. So what she did instead is she said, what industry is like mine where the top salespeople make half what we can pay? And that happened to be the shoot uh, retailing industry. So all she did was run ads in publications that were read by folks selling shoes and said, hey, would you like to make twice as much money? Didn't tell them doing what. She would get a lot of folks interested in that and say, look, if you can pivot from the shoe industry to the carpet industry, you can make twice as much and I'll just teach you how to sell carpet. And that became her steady pool of talent that she could pull from. A lot of us have a local company that's good at, at educating folks, but not really a great place to work. 
and that's a place that we can pull talent. Michael Dow pulled a lot of the talent he needed to run his factories from MIT Sloan School. And he got to know the professors well there. He spent a lot of time up there. He said, all right, who's your best engineer with an MBA that we can bring into our factories? So we think number two, having a really good pool of talent. And then number three, if you can really stop turnover. Uh, John Ratliff, a partner of mine, rolled up the call center industry, which I consider the sweatshops of the information age. That's an industry that averages, Dom, you know, 200% turnover. And he was able to drive that down to 18%, one-tenth the industry average, and built such a great culture and reputation in his local 24 markets that whenever he had an open position, he had the opposite problem. He'd get four to 500 people applying for his $15 an hour call center job. He liked to brag, as does a cliff bar out in Silicon Valley. It's easier to get into Harvard than it is to get hired at Apple Tree, his call center business, or at Cliff Bar that manufactures nutritional bars. So it's reputation in the marketplace, it's leaning out your processes, and it's having kind of a pool of talent that you can go to in order to fuel your growth. Your observation about Michael Dell reminds me of something we did here in the UK at Portsmouth. We had a data center in Portsmouth and we paired up with the local university, an idea I got from one of our employees. And these guys were learning how to manage IT networks, but they were doing it through software virtualization. And we did a tour of the data center. We offered to sort of teach on their course. And when we had vacancies, you know, almost every one of those guys applied to come and work for us. And so, you know, it, it doesn't have to be high cost. You have to be able to teach people as an organization. And often scale-ups aren't or haven't got that as a core skill. And they're going to need that if they're hiring, you know, shoe salesmen and cross-training as carpet. Do you, have you got any best practice or resources that you can point to to help people get their heads around that? You know, again, in a real practical sense, Let's start with every company needs a formal onboarding process, typically a one week boot camp, because they need to bring, inculcate, bring into the culture properly the newbies. And if not, just throwing them out into the field means your existing employees have got to educate them, and that's no fun. Plus, it takes a lot longer. So I remember when Sapient you know, made Stuart Moore and Jerry Greenberg billionaires back in the 90s. When they only had 70 employees, they had one of their employees come to them and said, look, guys, your cult our culture is starting to leak already. And that's what happens when you get to the point where you don't know everyone's name anymore. And that's somewhere around 50 or 60 or 70 employees. And so, as any great co-founder said to her, well, fix it. And her name was Courtney Dixon. And she ended up putting together a five-day boot camp. And any new employee that they hired, they gave them kind of a small project, an internal project that needed done, but nobody ever could get to it. And it team up where they brought in a vice president or a frontline you know, software engineer, and they would have a week to finish these projects, emphasizing one of their five core values each day of the five days. And it was also part of the final interview. They could first really see if these new people could understand the sapient way that they would develop software. And some of the folks didn't make it that final week. They either took themselves out, hey, this, isn't, this culture doesn't fit me, or they would say, you don't fit this culture. 
But most importantly, when they then started out in the field, the following Monday, they were almost at 90% in terms of understanding how the company does what it does. And a lot of us don't even have a good one day orientation and education process, let alone something that's five days or a couple of weeks. And so that's the first thing that we encourage and help companies put into place. What I'd like to do now is take you right back to, I suppose it really, it was at the, it was at the heart of the questions I was asking you at the beginning. So often I'll say to people, why are you in business? What is your business for? Why did you start it? What's your purpose? I know in the one page strategic plan that you've developed, that that's sort of, there it is. It's at the beginning, it's at the core, it's the North Star. When people say to me, particularly, maybe it's a UK thing, people are a little bit skeptical. They think that sounds a bit woolly, a bit fluffy, a bit woo woo. What would you say to those people? So if you look at our one page vision summary, we really think a vision requires you to make just a handful of decisions. And what anchors it are four. What are your core values? And we've helped several UK firms, as you have, Dom, really discover properly what are those handful of core values. What are the rules of the game? I'm a big Manchester City fan because obviously at some level they stole our coach and our, our leader from FC Barcelona. I spent many years in Barcelona. And everyone's clear in soccer what the rules are in football and there are referees that say if you violate some of them you get a yellow card and then you get a red card and you wouldn't think of having playing any sport without being clear what the rules are and those are your core values uh every sport has white lines yeah everyone knows when the ball is out so when you're at wimbledon before they just scream at the ref now we can use technology to zoom in but we can really see whether that thing was inbounds or not. And we need those kind of measurable, what we call brand promises. So those kind of form the rules and the boundaries. And then there's a place where we've got to put the, the puck or the ball, and it's the goal, the big, hairy, audacious goal that we, we outline. But what everyone's got to realize, whether it was the London Olympics and, and or you know, playing for a team that folks are doing it more than just for the glory for themselves. They're trying to win it for their city, their team, their city, their country. There's a purpose bigger than them. And that's really the idea of a purpose inside a company. And it's how do we really ignite that extra 40% effort that Aubrey Daniels at Harvard has identified employees can choose to give you or not. And that is a huge competitive advantage if you can tap into that. Because I got to tell you, making you rich isn't exactly the biggest motivator for everybody else inside the company. There needs to be something bigger. You know, I think about the, the craziest example, and that's Starbucks. But Howard Schultz, who, by the way, just announced a couple of days ago that he's finally stepping aside, maybe running for president in the United States. But he's always been clear, yeah, we sell coffee, but what we really are is that third place that third place between home and work, where you've had a rough day and a rough life and you can just escape for a few moments in a nice place and get a good cup of coffee and grab your sanity back. And so positioning, you know, Starbucks is not just selling overpriced average coffee, but being that third place, having a higher purpose, I think is why it has survived and thrived and grown as much as it has. 
And again, they're selling coffee, you know, with a bunch of teenagers as workers. In terms of the Scale Up Summit in New Orleans, which I was at, which I had a fantastic time at, when you were there saying about Starbucks and teenagers, I, it, it, I was struck by keynote speaker Tom Peters. And he was saying, you know, look, people are obsessed with millennials, but actually old people have all the money and women make all the purchasing decisions. So if you're not targeting old people and, and women, you're completely missing the point. And that was one of the things that, that I took away that st- stuck with me. And I just wonder, what are your personal takeaways from the fabulous speakers that, uh, that we listen to? Well, there's always many, but the idea of our scale-up summits is to be a mini think week uh, that I highlighted in my second book, something that was a habit Bill Gates executed. See, Bill always understood early on that you can't have anything interesting come out of your brain that you don't put in first. You know, it's just kind of this operating system. And you want to pile it in as fast as you can. And a lot of people get to the point where they say, well, look, I already know more than I can execute now. Why do I want to learn even more? And which is the wrong way to think about it. You need to get as many of those data bits piled in so that when you're making a decision three years or 30 years from now, and you make a slightly better decision than your competition, it's because it's something you picked up earlier that you combined with something else that gave you the edge. Now, what I liked about the Tom Peters thing is it really ties into, we created this new tool, Dom, as you know, called the SWEAT tool. A lot of folks do SWAT, strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats. But the SWEAT tool, we think, is something that the senior team must really engage in as they continue to plan the future. And the T there stands for trends. You know, the reality is, and Bill Gross did the research at Idea Lab. You know, he looked at the 100 companies that they've launched and the other 100 companies that they funded. And they want to look at the four areas we do in scaling up. You know, is it people, strategy, execution, or cash that is more important in scaling a venture? And there were two interesting findings that came out of that. First is all four are essentially equal. It's like a four-legged table. If any one of those legs is weak, the whole thing can topple over. So you've got to be strong in all four. But the other surprise that came out of the research is that there's a fifth that's more important than any of those four. And I had to actually update my book, Scaling Up, to reflect this. And that is market timing. You know, the market makes you look smart or it makes you look stupid. It can take kind of dumb people if they're in the right wave, you know, catch the right wave in the right market space, and they can do well. And you can have the smartest people get caught in the wrong wave and get crushed. And that's really what Tom Peters was focused on. And that is, what are two of the most significant trends over the next decade? And McKinsey's research was clear. Two-thirds of the global GDP growth is going to come from the over-60 crowd because they have all of the money. So I was working with a couple of young women in Amsterdam who had launched a custom purse business, and they were focused on the millennials. But as Tom Peters said, they don't have any money. It's the over 60 crowd. And so they pivoted to say, all right, we see where the puck is going and let's go ahead and, and focus on that market. The same with women. They're the ones that have all do make 90% of the purchases and our ability to understand how to communicate and appeal to them is critical. And so it's this idea of really understanding what are the trends, not only in your industry, but in general, 
And what are you doing to take advantage of those and apply them to your, your particular scale up? Vern, we, we've mentioned a number of authors and a number of books once we've been talking. Are there, other than reading Scaling Up, what do you think if there's a top, top one, top three, or even maybe something you've read recently that sort of blew your mind? Well, I, got, I have kind of a top five. I reference 40 different books in the back of Scaling Up. In fact, you can go to scalingup.com and click on a picture of the book and it'll take you to a site that'll even list all of the reference books by people, strategy, execution, and cash. And our Growth Institute has online one-hour courses by some of the top thought leaders in those same areas around people, strategy, marketing, sales, execution, and cash. But in my top five, I first put the goal that I mentioned earlier by Eli Goldratt, really getting focused around the constraints. I put in there uh, Jim Collins' last book, Great by Choice. You know, a lot of folks read Good to Great and Built to Last, but his last book was the one that was really written for us mere mortal scale-ups, and particularly go to his chapter on return on luck, because the reality is half our success is tied to luck, and it's really not whether you got good or bad luck, it's what you do with that luck that's critical. Pat Lanchoni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, because look, if the team you have doesn't know how to kind of fight without killing each other, if you're not able to surface the brutal facts and address them, everything is going to collapse in the organization. And so making sure you have what he calls a healthy team and healthy teams throughout the organization is important. And then I put up there Herman Simon, the German kind of Peter Drucker of Europe's book, Hidden Champions of the 21st Century. He was really the guy that studied globally these privately held many family-owned companies that were able to dominate these narrow niches, own 40, 50, 60, 80, 100% global market share. There's a hidden champion, for instance, only has eight employees, but they have 100% market share in their unique niche. And when you have this kind of domination, first your marketing costs are dramatically less and your margins are software-like in businesses that aren't typically generating software margins. There would be four of my kind of top five business books I think everybody needs to read. I've got another book, Top Grading. It's not the easiest read in the world, but that's been one of your sort of stalwart things around the people pillar for some time. It is. You know, we're really bad at hiring. Doesn't mean we hire bad people, but if we're down to the final three candidates, there's probably a better person that you left behind than the one you hired. And look, if you hire the right people, your life's easy. You hire the wrong people, your life's miserable. It's, it's kind of that black and white. Now we do recommend Jeff, Brad Smart's son, Jeff, wrote a very thin book called Who, which is a good primer to the top grading methodology. And then we recommend you read top grading. So I would absolutely concur. The other book that I'm a huge fan of right now, and we had one of the co-authors at the Scale Up Summit, you heard him speak, and that was Avi Goldfarb's book, Prediction Machines, because we need to figure out how do we integrate machine learning or AI into our business. If we don't, we're going to really get it replaced by a 20-year-old who does. His, their practical book on how to think about AI, which by the way is neither artificial or intelligent, the fact that what we're really needing to do is use this technology to help us better predict. 
Like we want to predict who in our database would be the best customers that we call on. Who do we think are our best prospects? How do you predict if a machine is going to fail? These are really practical things that machine learning can help us do better. And if it can help us do better, it can really improve our businesses. So we recommend all of us mere mortals read this book, Prediction Machines. What about customers? Customer attraction, customer attention. You got any great examples of people who've, who've managed to win in that space? I think the, the people who are winning win because of that space. They've got happy employees, happy customers, and therefore they have happy shareholders. That's kind of the trifecta of what's necessary in order to scale a business. The key, and the book I would encourage people to read there is, is the Harvard professor, top strategist, Francis Fry's book called Uncommon Service. And it's not a book about customer service, but it's a book about trade-offs. What the great companies, let's take Ikea or even Apple, one at the low end, one at the high end, have figured out is you can't be everything to everyone. You know, Apple only has 15% market share. Uh, Ikea only has 7% market share globally. Yet these are some of the most successful and highest market cap companies in their particular industries. And the key is they have figured out what are the two or three things that their group of customers they're focused on absolutely need. And then they try to be world-class at that. And then they're willing to be the worst at everything else. So Ikea is an absolute shopping disaster in terms of an experience. Yet they've got the Swedish meatballs, this great design and the right price. You know, iPhones, the, the number one thing, number one job we need that phone to do, and that's what they excel at, is taking photos and video. It's not making phone calls. That's just a, a rounding error. And by focusing on being the best at the two or three things that your market most wants, you can turn around and charge them an insane price, like $1,300. And yes, you're only going to have 15% market share, but you're going to own 89% of the profit in the particular industry. So I encourage everyone as they look at serving a marketplace to read Francis Fry's book, Uncommon Service. If people want to know more about what you're doing, how to get in touch with you, where should they go? Hey, just have to remember the name of the book, Scaling Up. So they can go to scalingup.com and they'll see a picture of the book right there at the, in the banner. And next to it, there's a link to our growth tools. We're all open source, including that one page vision summary. And it, they're available in all kinds of languages around the world, including the language of nonprofits, if we've got any leaders uh, listening from that sector. We also have a bonus chapter they can download on how do you prepare and run a strategic planning session. And it includes a sample one-page strategic plan. And then we've got a, an additional free chapter they can download on how do you do a one-page personal plan. So from signing up my weekly insights where I kind of put out hopefully what are considered practical ideas and recommendations each Thursday to all of those other free resources, uh, they can access all that through scalingup.com. Fantastic. And Vern, what's the, when's the next date for the next summit? For Europe, it's going to be November 6th and 7th in Amsterdam. Uh, we're going to bring over Greg Thompson, who is the author of Master Coach. As we're pivoting everyone from being managers to coaches, we already just hosted it in the United States. 
and was super well received. So we're going to be running that one day for both coaches and clients on November 6th. And then November 7th, I'm going to be leading my one day kind of updated scaling up workshop. So that'll be a scaling up like summit in Amsterdam, November 6th and 7th. We're also bringing Alan Miltz over with his information around cash flow and how to improve that. And then in the United States, we're going to be in Denver, October 16 and 17. Super excited. Who's anchoring it is, is Morton Hansen. Morton was Jim Collins co-author of Great by Choice what I consider one of the top four business books ever written. And he's got a new book out that is spectacular as well. So we've got a great lineup already set for Denver. Vern, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dom. I appreciate the interview. The Melting Pot was hosted by Dominic Monkhouse. And you can find out more about Dom on LinkedIn. Just search for Dominic Monkhouse or his companies, Foundry Media or Foundry 51.